All right, here we go. Well, welcome again. If you're visiting, my name is Peter. As we said here, I serve as the lead pastor of our church. And we're in week two, and actually chapter two, of our three-week study in the three chapters of the book of Titus. Uh, Now, I want to just give you my one-sentence summary of the whole book of Titus, and that is this, that healthy order produces healthy male leaders, which protect healthy doctrine, enabling healthy living. It's a lot of healthy. So again, a healthy order produces healthy male leaders, which is the uh, sermon from last week on chapter one, which protect healthy doctrine, chapter two, enabling healthy living, chapter three. That's my summary. So today, we'll get into chapter two of Titus and talk about healthy doctrine. Now listen, doctrine is not a life and death issue unless God exists. But because he exists and because of sin and fallenness and deception and confusion, therefore the the relationship between what we believe and the life that we live is vital. In other words, Uh, doctrine is a life and death thing. So I hope that you can give all of yourself away to God's word this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet and let's, let's go ahead and plug into our life source. We stand to honor God's word and we're in Titus 2 again. We will start with verses 11 through 15 and we'll build from there. Okay, here we go. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all, everyone say all, all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. God's word. Thank you. You can be seated. Jesus, help us. I can speak words and ideas of my own, but you're the only one who can plug us in to the power of your word, your living word today. Holy Spirit, I know you're here among us, and I ask you to convict hearts about the gravity of the things that we're discussing today, about our beliefs and how our beliefs not only affect how we live our lives, but it affects our eternal standing with you. I need you to help me. Amen. I want to take you back to verse 11. This very first word is crucial. For. For. See, this word for shows that the argument Paul's making in these verses is a grounds. It's a basis for an argument that he is making in the greater context He's some, he's, it's a grounds he's arguing against something else in the greater context of the letter. And I believe he's arguing against two things he addressed a little bit earlier in the letter. Two false doctrines that he's refuting that these things that we've already read are grounds for the argument he's making. And so I want to do this. I want to go back through these verses and lift them up 
as a grounds for healthy doctrine and show you how Paul is refuting at least two dangerous false doctrines in the few chapters before, okay? So I'm going to read this again, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now Paul is talking about healthy doctrine, as we'll see in the, in the chapter that's preceding this. And what he calls sound doctrine is in regards to the doctrine of grace and salvation. So I'm going to give you a summary of those two verses that we just read. And this is my statement of healthy doctrine. Salvation by grace empowers me to renounce ungodliness and to live a godly life today. Salvation by grace empowers me to renounce ungodliness and to live a godly life today. I'm going to ask you to repeat that with me. Get our blood flowing here. Repeat, re- repeat after me. Salvation by grace. Try again. Salvation by grace. Thank you. Empowers me. Say that again and do this. Empowers me to renounce you got to give the finger shake. Renounce ungodliness and to live a godly life today. Good job. Thanks for helping me preach. I need help preaching. Now, I believe Paul is refuting two false doctrines that were two lies prevalent in the church in Crete where Titus was leading. Two, two real lies that the enemy was propagating at the time which happen to be the same lies that I think are in our culture today because the devil isn't super creative. And unfortunately, in our weakness, we've shown him that he doesn't really have to be. Here's two lies that the devil was propagating at the time that will not only prevent godly living today, but also ravish your soul and cause eternal destruction. So it's important to understand why this is so important about the grace of God appearing and what it does. So the two basic lies that he's coming against with healthy doctrine is liberalism and legalism. I know that uh, we're the generation that hates labels. We're the label-free generation, but it's helpful. So label, label one, liberalism. Label two, legalism. Two false doctrines that Paul is refuting here. Now, if you remember, salvation by grace empowers me to renounce ungodliness and to live a godly life today. If if that's healthy doctrine, then the lie of liberalism says that salvation by grace ignores ungodliness and nullifies godly living today. Whereas the lie of legalism is that Renouncing ungodliness, it takes it the other way around. Renouncing ungodliness and living a godly life today brings salvation. Now listen, these lies are pretty much the same thing as healthy doctrine. Just like fresh squeezed orange juice is pretty much the same thing as fresh squeezed orange juice with an ounce of cyanide in it. Pretty much healthy doctrine is poison, in other words. Liberalism unplugs from the source of power of healthy doctrine, whereas legalism 
really crosses the wires of healthy doctrine, and both render you powerless. And I also understand the risk of using a word like liberalism in our culture today, where that word has kind of been reserved lately for kind of like a a political thing. But let's just go there for a minute, because the political mess provides a perfect metaphor for the dangers that we're to avoid, okay? Think about the crazy political stuff that you're seeing right now in this election season and how mad it makes you, and apply that to the danger of the poison that we can allow into our doctrine in serving God. That's, that's a perfect metaphor. It's a painful metaphor. Jesus is not a right-winger or a left-winger, and Jesus is not stuck in the middle with you. I have to throw a bone to our 30 and overs every once in a while. He's not in the middle. He's transcendent. He's above all the filth. And here's what healthy doctrine does. It helps us. It gives us the grace that enables us to not just be defiled by right-wing defilement, conservative types of defilement, or so-called progressive types of defilement, but faith in him helps us to rise above our defilements. And that's the point of healthy doctrine. As we wait on our blessed hope, a greater hope, I, I don't want to get too far into this, but all the stuff I'm seeing today grieves me about our country today. But I think the silver lining in all the junk out there is that at least we'll be less apt to place our hope in human institutions like Republicans or Democrats or America itself. And instead we'll... Uh, Verse 13, we'll wait on our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who's way better than everything you see here. So let's unpack this. First, the lie of liberalism. Again, salvation by grace ignores ungodliness and nullifies godly living today. That's the lie. You know, if you're not well acquainted with the godliness that you fail to live out, then salvation really won't make sense to you. You, don't, you won't know why you need forgiveness and grace and how only a holy God can provide that for you and what that's meant to produce today and tomorrow. Salvation just won't make sense to you unless you're well acquainted with the holiness that you fail at. And liberalism is like this. Liberalism is like unplugging a lamp from its power source. Now, in one sense, we can kind of rip on legalism and say that, you know, it's so boastful and irreverent to God to deny that the grace of God is a gift and having light in the darkness is a gift in the first place. But we'll get to it. We'll pick on legalism in a minute. Liberalism, though, is just totally an unplugging from the source of the light. And it's irreverent in its own way. You know, the Cretan culture that Paul was addressing was actually proverbial for a sensuous, liberal surrounding. And, and honestly, Paul, as much as he was uh, concerned about the pervasive kind of subculture of religiosity in Crete and in the church, he was also very concerned about the pervasiveness of the liberal sensuality around him. He, in fact, he, he rebukes in chapter one, he says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. In essence, he's saying, 
you shouldn't live like lazy, evil beasts. And you know what? There's one thing that all of us can agree on, right? That God's design for our life is to be better than that, better than animals. We can start there and agree on that. But though I think it's, we're ready to agree on that, I think the subtle things that we start believing and giving into when it comes to God's grace start leading us down a road of thinking that's dangerous for us. I'll give you an example. Have you ever heard kind of this idea, like, you know, if God is forgiving, then it doesn't matter how you live your life. I, I mean, I used to almost have a shirt that said that. If God's forgiving, it really doesn't matter how you live your life. It's, it's kind of like saying, you don't matter to God, and your life isn't precious to him. That's wrong thinking. That's poison. Let me tell you a story. I, about a month and a half ago, we helped our Every Nation campus crew at the University of Texas for a week-long outreach called Hookup Culture. It was kind of our provocative title, title to come and engage the campus with uh, God's plan for sexuality and marriage. And after the first night, we had already kind of caused a stir on the campus because it seemed like the whole Secular Student Alliance had come out in full force and passion and looking for a fight, handing out free condoms, holding up provocative signs. And it was like there was some, something stirring there. And the way we responded to them kind of made them even more mad. We just we thanked them for being there and for being so generous to contribute to our conversation. And they didn't quite know what to do with that. Uh, there's one girl, let's just call her Mary. Uh, she had a big old sign that said, no more slut shaming. No more slut shaming. And I never heard that phrase before, and I was kind of intrigued, and I went up to her and introduced myself, and I said, what, what does that mean? <laughs> and she said, you know, if young men live promiscuous lifestyles, then they're applauded. But if young women choose to do the same things with their bodies, they're told that by religious people that they're, they're worthless or they're sluts. And I was just jarred by this, this language, right? Like, like, oh my gosh, like, how could that, like, that happens. And I got actually a little emotional right on the onset and I said, Mary, I am so sorry that you've been treated like this. Because here's the thing. I was that young, promiscuous young man. And Jesus never once shamed me. In fact, he drew me close. And he drew me into repentance. To something greater than the way I was living. Using the kindness of other people that were following him. And people, like religious people that have treated you like that. If we treat you like that, it's exactly the opposite of how Jesus has treated us. So... I said, Mary, I'm so sorry. Can you please forgive us? And Mary puts her sign down, and she says, you don't need to ask me forgiveness. I'm not, I'm not hurt by this or anything, she says. She says, I just want to come here and, and make a case that many of us can uh, have different arguments of how we can live our life and seek to attaining quality, healthy relationships. And after a moment of silence, I said, Mary, can we at least agree, just pause for a minute and agree that the fact that we want healthy relationships and that we have that in common is pretty amazing, right? Let's just pause. She says, what do you mean? I said, like, I said, is there any explanation for that? Is there any evolutionary 
explanation for why we would want quality, lasting relationships? And she says, well, I guess not. And she gave me kind of a a curious look. And uh, I said, Mary, my wife and I have three daughters and a son. And the thought of any of our daughters ever being called a name, like I'm seeing right here, the thought that that could ever happen makes me want to cry right now. And she says, you know, I, I think that you need to understand that your daughters need to be uh, encouraged to, to live their lives the way they want to live it and not be ashamed of what they want to do with their own bodies. And I stopped at that and I said, you know, I don't really agree with that, Mary. I think that not everything my kids want is good for them. And the crazy thing is, is I'm responsible for helping protect them from their own oppression as well as the oppression of other people. And she says, I don't agree with that. I said, let me give you an example. Uh, My wife and I care about what our kids eat, and I think we're responsible for feeding them. If left to themselves, my kids would only eat Velveeta cheese and processed foods. And she looked at me and she says, I'm really passionate about organic foods, but I don't see what that has to do with sex. And I said, the food that we give them shouldn't just be reflective of what they want in their bodies or what they think they want only, but it should be reflective of the value that they possess. And the same with sex, the way we teach them and protect them to to handle and think about sex should be reflective of their value. And I said, Mary, you can forgive me for being extremely direct with you right now because I'm the daddy of three daughters. But listen, you, you are so valuable and precious. You know what? You're worth, as the Bible says, you're worth a man waiting for until marriage, giving his life to and forsaking all others to keep himself only for you is what we say in weddings. That's what you're worth. And Mary began to cry. And in this moment, it got really awkward because a lot of her friends started seeing her crying and me looking at her like right, real directly. And she thought we were in an argument and they came to her rescue and she calls them off and says, no, 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 it's okay. And she thanked me for our conversation. And that night, a lot of those SSA students came to our, our outreach and a lot of them were really touched by God. Now, here's where I tell you that story. Hallelujah. Here's why I tell you that story, because, praise the Lord, because how you live your life matters because you matter to God. He doesn't want to restrict you with dead rules. He wants to liberate you with his grace. You matter so much that Jesus paid a high price to preserve that grace and forgiveness for you. And God's grace doesn't just free you to do what you want. It frees you to want what he wants and therefore live the lifestyle that he's designed you to live. That's what God's grace does. It's so much more than the sensuality that you're prone to and that I'm prone to. And the life that he calls you to live is healthy doctrine. I think you'll see here. Healthy doctrine isn't some ideas to think about. It's a life to live. In fact, let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 2. But as for you, saying to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So you'd think he would launch into some, some, just some ideas. But listen, 
Sound doctrine is this, verse two, older men are be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Stop right there real quick. As you can see with where he's going, sound doctrine is a thing that happens in a group of people that are distinct, that they're different, different places, different genders, different races. But the one thing that unites them together is an unusual way of living that's only from God. It shows, not just tells, but shows that Jesus really is alive by how we live together. It goes on, verse four. So train the young women to love their husbands and their children and to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, hallelujah. Verse seven, show yourself, Titus, in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity and sound, sound speech that cannot be condemned so that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants, uh, some versions translate it, slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now at the risk there of having to open a can about slavery... I'm going to go there for a minute because it makes a great point about the heart of this message. First of all, though, slavery, when it talks about Greek bond service, is not the same thing as the horrific transatlantic slave trade system of the last several centuries, where human beings were treated like animals for lucrative financial gain. Okay? It's a very different thing. But here's the point. Paul is declaring that salvation by grace frees people to live at a deeper level of freedom than your external circumstances dictate. So whether you're male or female or old or young or a bond servant, God can do an internal work of grace that frees you to live above your earthly limitations. That's why the next verse says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. For all people, meaning all types of people, Greek, Jew, man, woman, bondservant, all types of people. That's the power of Jesus that is unmatched by anyone else. So God's grace doesn't disregard or ignore external worldly conditions or police brutality or anything else, but conquers the internal things in order to restore the external No one else like Jesus can do this. When Jesus plugs you into God's grace, he brings light and really it changes everything. That's the story of my life. It changes everything inside out. It officially empowers you, not just to try to renounce ungodliness and to live as you were designed to live, but to actually live today. Now, I dare you to take a moment and take that in the opposite for a second. If today you aren't living the life that you're designed to live, perhaps the Holy Spirit is showing you that you're unplugged. Now, if that's, if that's you, there's two really dangerous ways that you can react to this as opposed to responding well before the Lord and surrendering to, to God and his word. Uh, the, the one dangerous way you can react is by getting offended, either by, at me, even though 
I'm speaking to a congregation and not individuals. The Holy Spirit is speaking to you, if that's you. Uh, You can react to me or to God's word and get angry and continue to presume upon God's grace where you're, you're kind of taking advantage of the benefit of his light while rejecting the source of his light. Or danger two is this, is that maybe you're convicted and you're like, okay, I'm gonna try harder now. I am going to go and renounce ungodliness and live a godly life right now with all my strength. And in essence, that is rejecting grace and that is the lie of legalism. The second thing that Paul is rebuking here. You know, the main difference between faith in Jesus and every other ideology or religion or idea that is dead is this. Essentially, dead religions is the effort to live for God versus living faith is the grace to live from God. So dead religion says, live for God. And Jesus says, you're dead. Dead people can't live for anything, but I can make you alive. Dead religion says, free yourself and seek oneness or nirvana or whatever else. And Jesus says, you're either a slave to death and sin or you're alive with me. You're made alive by my grace and you're a slave to righteousness. Dead religion says, choose the right. Christ says, all your righteous deeds are like filthy rags in my presence. You can't choose rightly. But listen, I have chosen you. Even when you were dead in your sins and trespasses, Jesus says, I chose you. And I chose to provide the forgiveness for your sin and the grace to live from me. So again, liberalism is where I disconnect from God's law and his power, and I try to become my own law. But legalism here, it's, I accept God's law, but I try to live it in my own strength. You know, I short-circuit the whole thing because I am accepting his law, but rejecting his grace to live it. Now, in his letter to Titus, Paul gets to the heart of this right away, and he addresses this class of people, this other subculture that's prevalent in the church that he calls the Judaizers or the circumcision party. And right away, he's addressing these ideas. Even verse one of chapter one, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, the chosen, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords to godliness. So listen, the knowledge of the truth leads to godliness, not the other way around. It doesn't say if you try really hard at godliness, then you'll arrive at the knowledge of truth. It's the knowledge of truth, then godliness. And furthermore, the knowledge of truth is not just an intellectual idea or thinking. John Calvin says, all doctrine is useless until God engraves it, as it were, with his own finger upon our hearts. So no amount of self-discipline, rule-following, self-efforts can purify you for this profound knowledge that only God can do. That's why Paul warns, let's get, get down to uh, verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. You know, just as in Paul's day, and so too in our day, many are rejecting God's grace by trying to attain their own standard of holiness without his power. 
And at that point, people like this, the enemy becomes external things, you know? Uh, if, I, if I'm trying an external effort, then the enemy is external things like dancing or beer or fashionable clothing. And it's because I haven't been internally purified by God. And so the external things I'm afraid about, I haven't been emboldened by his grace to conquer the external things. See, they're short-circuiting God's plan by trying to arrive at an external adherence without internal purification. That's why verse 15 says, he says, listen, to the pure, or in context, the purified, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Which is so sad because they're, The effort is to do good things, but we can't even do that when we try in our own strength. I think the pain and the shame of this lie is only surpassed in grief by the failure to live out this lie in this life. And this was me. I really tried to live for God. And I made myself feel better because I was so much better at following the rules than my brothers. But I found eventually that I couldn't even follow the, the rules. And I became the proverbial guilty Catholic and, and eventually just gave myself over to sensuality and liberalism and uh, the, the full depth of my own sexual perversion. And that's kind of where I was, dead, until the grace of God encountered me through a campus ministry when I was 14 years old. There are two categories, essentially, of people in the world. Category one, sinners. People who are dead, wicked people who, without God's grace, supernaturally making them alive, there's no hope for these sorts of people. That's category one. Category two is Jesus. All of us are in category one. We need God's grace. There's no hope for people in category one unless Jesus, the lone person in category two, does a work of grace that causes all the subcategories of category one, people who are unplugged from his grace or people who are short-circuiting his grace, all the people living in darkness, unless the grace of God appears Bringing salvation, there is no hope. Now, as I close, let's, let's revisit real quick this lie of legalism. We can bring that back up. The lie of legalism says that renouncing ungodliness and living a godly life today brings salvation. Now, I've said that that's a lie, but there's some truth in it. And the truth is this, that if a man can actually live this way, he can bring salvation. That's just what happened. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. And in the great exchange, he died the death that we should have died. And he died it in our place. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead so that he could appear and bring salvation for all people. Would you stand to your feet with me, please? I'm going to invite the prayer team and the worship team back up. 
You know, perhaps you're here and you've struggled with, with legalism. Maybe being ashamed or other people shaming you or you shaming other people. And I want to tell you that right now the grace of God is here for you to restore you. If you would just give yourself away to God, you can be used by him. You can be reconstituted by his grace. Now, if on the other hand, you've, you've given up on even trying to follow the rules like, like I did, and perhaps you've embraced liberal thinking only to find that it doesn't liberate you. You're still bound by guilt. Why? Because you are made for so much more than you'll settle for. And Jesus right now is wanting to give you a better hope than your efforts or anyone else's efforts. He's wanting to give you the hope that you can wait on the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He appears in you, giving you grace, giving himself, giving of himself. He gave himself away first to redeem for us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people that are zealous for good works. Maybe you're here and you're back and forth between some of these things. Now I want to encourage you during this last song, do business with God. You're more sinful than you're willing to understand or admit even if you could understand it. But listen, way more loved than you'll ever know and that is the grace of God. And so wherever you are with this, if you need to come up and pray with our team during this last song, let's, let's pray. If you've never given yourself away to God, to the one who gave himself to you on the cross, for the first time, maybe today's the day, whether you come up or not, wherever you are, I'm encouraging you to do business with the grace of God as we sing this last song, and then I'm going to come back up and close.